All right, well, this morning um, we're going to start in Isaiah 5, and we'll eventually get to Isaiah 28 and, and kind of look at, uh, we're going to be starting a section that's basically Isaiah 28 through 31, if you want to read ahead. Um, but this morning, to paint the picture, I'm going to have a pretty long intro in order to get us to a point where we understand Isaiah 28. If you read ahead, uh, it's got, you know, just this beautiful imagery of uh, tables full of vomit and uh, drunkards reeling, all sorts of fun stuff uh, that's uh, definitely on the list. You know, you look up online, the top list of encouraging passages in Scripture, Isaiah 28 is right up there, right? Um, but we're going to go through it and, and try and understand it as best we can today because all Scripture is useful uh, for us learning about Christ and what He expects of us and, and how to bask in His glory and grace. Um, and so this morning, I want to actually start in Isaiah 5 because last week we talked about fruitfulness, and I ended the sermon basically asking each one of us in this church to examine our own fruit and to see what fruit was in our life to understand if we were actually in relationship with Christ, letting Him work through us. And this idea of fruit is huge throughout Isaiah. It's huge throughout the Bible and many parables of Jesus. But in Isaiah 5, he tells this picture of this fruitless vineyard. And you can see it there with me. He says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And we talked about uh, months ago when we went through this, that this is basically poisonous grapes, grapes that are unuseful. They might look like useful grapes, but they're unuseful. And so then he says, oh, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but outcry. God was looking for the fruit of righteousness and justice, as we talked about last time. And he found only bloodshed, hatred, violence, outcry. God's people were not living as the reflection that they were called to live. And as I read this in kind of a monotone way, realize that this was probably yelled. This was probably spoken in harsh terms because it is a correction. And this is what he's saying in Isaiah 5. But then he does promise, as we looked at last time, turn with me to Isaiah 27. Go ahead and go to the right to Isaiah 27. God picks up this idea of the illustration of the vineyard, and he has Isaiah speak it again, but this time in a sense of hope. And he says that one day, in that day, this is 27-2, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, he says. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Now this is the vineyard of God's people. The first one proclaimed to be God's people, proclaimed to be the chosen people of God, but they were fruitless in how their lives played out. This is God's true fruitful vineyard. And for those of you that farm or um, those of you that garden, you know way better than I do because I'm a city kid, uh, you know that to take a fruitless vine... And to turn it into a fruitful vine takes a whole lot of work, doesn't it? Some of you in, in here are vintners, you know, man, sometimes you even have to rip out the root, so to speak, and start over. And this process is a metaphor for the discipline that God will perform in the midst of his people, this transitioning from a fruitless to a fruitful vine. Now, why is that? Why will God do this? Because last time we talked about this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Remember that for God to be a good father, for him to be a just God, for him to be a loving savior, he not only has to give us the grace and the encouragement, but he also has to correct us when we stray away from him and when we act in a way that is not of his image. And so his discipline is there for the possibility of repentance. Rather than enabling behavior, God is all about changing the behavior. But more so than that, God is about changing the heart underneath that aligns with the behavior. 
Now, the reality is, is that God saves us where we're at, right? Come as you are is the absolute statement of Jesus Christ. But guys, the second you start following Jesus, he says, don't stop. He wants to take us in the midst of our garbage and brokenness and bring us out of it to walk in a way of everlasting life and grace and peace. And so God is a loving God that will do the work necessary with us, in us, to change our hearts and minds. And so God will bring loving discipline to Judah and Israel here in Isaiah because they are fruitless. Now, how do we know this? Well, let's really quickly take a quick look at the timeline of the people of God thus far. I want to take you guys through this. Hopefully you can see this. Because a lot of times I think we get stuck in where are we in the Bible? What's happening with Isaiah's prophecy? Here's the actual events that were going on that led up to the point we're at today, okay? Call of Abram was about 2100 B.C., Um, 1446 BC, the Exodus happened. You guys all know that story, right? Let my people go, that whole thing, right? Okay. It's about to come up on TV, right? Right, John? Yeah. John was talking about this morning, how he's excited for the movie. Okay. Uh, And uh, so uh, the Exodus and then um, the monarchy, um, the start of the kings of Israel. You remember Saul and then David uh, and then uh, Solomon. Okay. And so that was the start of the monarchy in 1043. And so they're aligned. Israel is one country. They have one king. Uh, Then the temple gets dedicated in 959. Solomon finally gets the temple built. He dedicates it to God. Everybody thinks, yay, we're worshiping God the way we should. Everything's perfect. We're aligned as a people. And then the kingdom splits in 931. Notice how soon after the temple is dedicated. 28 years, guys. Not even one generation, and we go from, man, God is among his people, to total destruction, right? And the kingdom splits, and it splits into two groups. It splits into northern Israel, okay, which is the green there, and the southern kingdom of Judah, all right? So all of the tribes, except for Judah and really Benjamin, are down to the south. All the rest of the tribes are up there in the north. Well, in the midst of this split is when Isaiah is called in 739, Okay, so we've been going on for a a while here, almost 200 years, uh, 192 years, and Isaiah is called to proclaim to the southern kingdom um, God's word. Well, what's going on in the northern kingdom? In the northern kingdom, you have them continuously rebel to the point where God uses complete pagans, the Assyrians, to come in and wipe them out and take them captive into the land of Assyria in 722. Okay? Now, during the split, all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, led them in what's called idolatry or idol worship. They did not follow Yahweh. There were 19 kings, and out of 19, 19 of them led them in idol worship. Okay? So we are zero for zero here. Zero for 19. In the southern kingdom, they also had 19 kings that lasted a longer span of time. And out of those 19, they had six kings who led them in the ways of the Lord, reformed the system, broke down the altars of the idols, and helped people to actually worship Yahweh again. And to do this, they had to do massive change in the people. And so Israel is taken captive in 722. Jerusalem, or the southern kingdom, they keep getting beat up by uh, Assyria And Jerusalem itself gets threatened in 701, 21 years later. And then it takes a while, but eventually, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, falls not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians. Okay? So I know that's a lot of history and a lot of information, but we have to understand all that's going on in order to be able to truly understand our text today. So, what was it that was happening Here's what was going on, okay? You've got over in the right there where the arrow is, Assyria, okay? And what Assyria did, let me help you out here. What Assyria did is they moved, so they moved from Assyria all the way down through the north. They hit uh, uh, what we know as Syria, and then they went and hit Samaria, and then they went on into Jerusalem, okay? And they basically took kingdoms as they were going, And where we see this is in 2 Kings 17. So go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 17. We'll look at it together. We're going to cover a good portion of this this part of Scripture because um, this helps us set up what we're going to hear from Isaiah today. 
2 Kings 17. Look there at verse 1. This is towards the end of that timeline um, where Assyria is about to come and take Israel. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah began to reign in Samaria. Okay, so Ahaz is down in the south kingdom, and Hoshea is reigning in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? A super bad thing, all right? Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he wasn't as bad as the other kings, but he was still bad, all right? Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. Okay, we don't use words like this. So basically, this is what it is. He got the, he got the ability to stay in the northern kingdom, but he was a puppet king. He had no power. It was really Assyria that had the power, and he had to pay taxes to Assyria, and he just got dangled on a string, okay? But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria uh, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, um, on, on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Okay? And so Hosea was not terrible, but he did not remove idolatry from the land, and he basically did the same thing the other kings did, where he led the people in idolatry. And he was playing all these political games where he knew Assyria was coming, but he went and made an alliance with Egypt and then stopped paying taxes to Assyria in a, in a sense to basically get uh, rid of Assyria. All right? Now, the, why, was this, uh, why was this happening? Well, because they didn't rely on the Lord. They wanted to rely on themselves and the alliances that they made. And so we go on and we look at what happened, why God exiled them into Assyria. Look at verse 7. This occurred, this exile, taking them away to Assyria, occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings in all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Now we read this and we think, oh man, good thing we're not like them. Good thing we don't do those things anymore. But while we may not have Asherah poles that we go and worship at, remember that these are the gods of success, the gods of materialism, the gods of lust, of sexuality. These are the gods that we still serve today. And the main point of why God sent them into exile was because they weren't different from the nations around them. Remember this. This is uh, uh, something we've talked about before. Okay? Let me read this to you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For if you were the fewest of all peoples, 
But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faith those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. That's from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. The whole point of Israel was that they were to be a different nation, a different group of people that the world would be able to look at and go, man, they worship a different God and the way that they follow that God is way different than all the rest of us. We're all about success and materialism and selfishness. They're all about serving the other and the oppressed. Uh, We're all about uh, making sure that our crops are fertile and that we have lots of income. Uh, They're all about giving it away to help the poor and the needy. That was who they were supposed to be, but they hadn't done that. And so when we look at 2 Kings 17, we realize that God had sent them into exile because they hadn't fulfilled the point of what they were supposed to be. They were faithless to the covenant of God. Look back at 2 Kings 17 and look at verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Odd story. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God in the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities which they lived. Skip down to verse 34. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall offer sacrifice." And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. In other words, there was no change so, they na- so these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. See, the story of Israel was one of gracious worship, where God saved them not because they'd earned it, not because they'd been good, not because they'd been righteous, but because God loved them. And he wanted to show his love to the world by loving this nation and drawing them to be a light to the rest of the world. And so we, I think sometimes we wrongly read the Old Testament as back then God judged everybody by their works and now he judges everybody by grace. No, it's always been God graciously draws people to himself. Without his grace, we are lost as humanity. But then he requires covenant relationship. Just as he did back then, he does today. He says, I have saved you by grace through faith, but I have saved you for the purpose that you might be a light to the nations. That's why he calls us a city on a hill the salt to be scattered among the nations. In response, Israel didn't take this uh, and, and do as God wanted. They took the rescue, but then they acted like the nations around them. They took God's faithful covenant response, but they said, we don't have to respond in any way, shape, or form. And even the remnant that remained had a half-hearted response in trusting Yahweh to the point where they would say they feared Yahweh, but yet in their daily life, they're worshiping the gods of of success and prosperity and sexuality and profit and entertainment with their time, talents, and treasure. 
And this was what the fathers taught their children's their children, even unknowingly, instead of explicitly teaching the way of Yahweh to their children and not leaving it to chance. And it was a slow burn that I guarantee no one in the midst of it said, whoa, what are we doing, guys? Except these prophets who came and said, guys, we got to change it. And so they slowly but surely shifted and became just like the world around them and lost their witness as God's people. And so Isaiah, being a prophet to the people of Judah, was using this example of Israel's pride. And he was trying to get them to correct what was going on and speak the truth to Judah in hopes that they would repent. And so today, what we're going to see as we look at this is we're going to see a choice between scoffing or repenting. When correction is brought to Israel and to Judah, they have a choice. And it's somewhere on the spectrum between scoffing and repenting. And I think for us today, we are no different in that we receive correction. Now, show of hands here. I'll let you finish writing this down, a choice between scoffing or repenting. But I want a show of hands here. How many in this room absolutely love getting corrected? Raise your hand. Okay. Not any one of us in this room. Anybody have an answer for me why that is? Pride, it's hard, we're human. Whatever the answer is, none of us like it. And yet, for us to walk in who we are to be for Christ, correction has to come. And so for us as a people, the question is the same. We have a choice between scoffing or repenting. Which is it that we will choose? And so let's take a look now at Isaiah 28. Go ahead and turn there with me. And we'll pick up our text today. First thing that we're going to see is this. Israel proved that scoffing at correction will end with destruction. Israel proved that scoffing at correction will end with destruction. I've been a Christian for pretty long time now, and I've read through the Bible a number of times and, and uh, studied it, hopefully, pretty intensely. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. How often does the Bible encourage us? Is it a lot or a little? A lot, absolutely. How often does the Bible correct us? Is it a lot or a little? A lot. Is it right to take one without the other? I think often we use phrases like, oh, let's eat the meat and spit out the bones of the Bible. Oh, man, that is just the scariest thing I've ever heard. What does that lead to? Which are we naturally as human beings going to be drawn to? Oh, I just, yeah, I'm going to totally listen to all the correction, but not the encouragement. Is that ever going to happen? No, I don't know a human being that would ever be, yeah, just keep beating me, Lord, right? Unless they've got some kind of pathology going on, right? No, we're always going to go towards the encouragement. That's not a bad thing at all at all. We should, right? There, this week, I've been sitting in the Psalms trying to encourage, oh, encourage myself in the Lord, right? That's a good thing. But we can't take one without the other. And so today, what we're going to see is we're going to see a ton of correction. But I think that this is really important for us to hear because it's not just Israel and Judah. It's us as well today. So let's take a look here in Isaiah 28, starting in verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down the earth to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he will swallow it as soon as it is in his hand. Isaiah first takes aim here at the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim is used here as another name for the northern nation of Israel. And the name Ephraim is used here because it means doubly fruitful. The northern tribe of Israel was in the most fruitful part of Israel. They had wonderful land. If you go there today, all of the major farms are in that part of Israel. 
And they were supposed to be like their land, doubly fruitful. God had given them this crown of glory where they were fruitful and prosperous. And the appropriate response was to realize that this prosperity was given by God, and it was given so that they could be a blessing and a witness to the world around them. But instead, instead they selfishly saw their prosperity as something owed to them and their own doing, and so they became drunk with its effects. And the picture here is of a strong man who's supposed to be powerful and strong, and he's got a crown upon his head, uh, a symbol of victory, as if in the Olympic Games. And yet he is so drunk with his own prosperity that he stumbles and falls and lands on the ground and the crown falls off. When corrected by the prophets in their midst, they responded with arrogance and the opinion that they didn't need to be corrected. They were above correction. As we'll see, they're called the scoffers. And the word scoffing means to believe that you don't need to be corrected, that you're above correction. You are as you need to be. And so the Lord in loving discipline will bring his acting agent, the one who is mighty and strong, he says here, he's speaking of Assyria, to come and discipline them in the midst of their drunken stupor. But they will lose their crown or their fading flower of glorious beauty, as he calls it. It will fall and be trampled underfoot by the attacking enemy. And they will quickly be consumed like the first fig of the season. Not an uplifting passage, but one that is very serious because Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what's going on. They had forgotten from whom they'd received the glory. They had forgotten from whom they received the strength. And they had wandered under their own strength as if in a drunken stupor. But then he transitions in verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. He transitions from the people of Ephraim here down into a discussion of his people. I love verse 5. In the day of the Lord, when he returns for his people, he will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. See, the people above that, they had taken all of their prosperity and their success and said, look at us, this is our crown of glory. What is the crown of glory that God's people have? It's not ourselves. It's not our own strength. It's not our own prosperity. What is it that we have to give to the world? Jesus. Jesus is our crown of glory. Jesus is what shows us to the world as glorious and peaceful. And strong. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find majesty, that we find strength. And those of us who will be in front of him, Revelation says, worshiping him, we don't even have anything of our own to give him in worship. It says that the elders in heaven will cast down their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Even what they have, the object of their worship at the time, is because of Jesus. When you think about it, guys, we are so depraved in nature as humans that it is by God's grace alone that we can even open our mouth or raise our hands. It's because of his goodness, his grace. And he will be that crown of glory and diadem of beauty to his people. But then he makes this interesting statement in verse 6 that if we're not careful, we're going to miss because it's so quick. He says, He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. This is very, very interesting because in our cultural context, this doesn't have a lot of meaning, but to the people of Isaiah's day, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. And he's going to go on from this section and start to talk about the leaders of Ephraim and how they have led the people in drunkenness. But here, he gives a picture not only of the people of God, but of the leaders of the people of God. Let me tell you a little bit about what I mean here. Cities in the days of Isaiah needed gates. And most cities, if they were large enough, they had what was called the city gates. And so what's interesting here is if we take a Google Maps view, let's say, okay, we're flying above the city gates, and the white part is the walls. Most cities would have something like this. They would have an outer gate that faced the world, and they would have an inner gate that faces the interior of the city. And then in the little enclaves of the gates, they would have benches in which the leaders of the, the city or the leaders of the community would sit, and they were called elders. 
okay? Here's another uh, way that it was designed. This is in the city of Tel Dan. The outer gate is up there at the top. Down there in the middle is the bench where the elders would sit. The, the other rectangle there on the side is where the king of Tel Dan would sit or the chief uh, elder would sit. And then there was the inner gate. Just to give you a little bit of a reference, and this is me uh, a long time ago when I was a lot younger. There's me sitting on the bench of the elders next to the chief elder's spot in the city of Tel Dan. And so when you came into the city, you would walk in and the first thing you would always be greeted with is the elders of the city. And there was a reason for this because the elders had a very, very important job. Let me tell you some of the things that the elders had to do. They were to be the people that managed the business of the city to make sure no one was getting taken advantage of. They were to be the judge and jury collectively when there were disputes within the community that they were elders over. They were to be the first line of defense and protection when a stranger came into the city that wanted to do harm or a foreign enemy came and attacked the gates. They were the ones to whom you brought someone who was sinning in the midst of the community publicly so that they could provide discipline and accountability and remove the sin from the community in which it was part of. Some cities had wonderful elders. You guys can think of Boaz bringing the elders together to decide the fate of Naomi and Ruth there in the city gates. And some cities had evil elders that forsook their duties. You can think of Lot in the gates of Sodom, sitting there alone because the rest of the elders were off partying. And this is why the Bible is clear that in the community of the church, there needs to be elders and leaders to protect and oversee, give judgment, provide discipline, and guidance for the community of faith. Guys, this isn't a cultural construct that went away because we don't have elders in the community. This is something required in the church. And so the, the leaders of God's people, as it says there in Isaiah 28, the leaders will lead in justice when they provide judgment. And the leaders will be strength to fight back those who want to battle at the gate of God's kingdom, at the gate of God's city. Peter uses the same language uh, in 1 Peter. Why don't you guys turn to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5. Verses 1 through 4. He says this, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's the exact same statement that's used, the exact same phrase, this crown of glory in Isaiah 28. Peter is trying to encourage elders who are fighting hard in the early church to protect their people, guide their people, give them strong doctrine, fight against heresy, fight against sin within the church. And he says, guys, if you keep going, you're going to receive the crown of glory that is unfading. This is the exact same language Isaiah used. Unlike the leaders of the people of Ephraim, where their, uh, their crown of, the, of fading flower, of its glorious beauty, is falling and being destroyed, Jesus provides to, the, to his people and the leaders of his people a crown of glory that will never fade. And he guides his leaders in justice and in strength. Total side note here, folks. Kind of a little bit of family business. We need elders. David and Patrick and I, we do the best job we can, and we struggle and we make errors and lots of mistakes. But we need, especially you men, to step up in leadership. So many of us think that someone else will do the job. That's just not going to be the case. And especially as we grow as a church, we need faithful men to stand up and be counted, to be the leaders of this congregation, to lay down their lives 
to assist the people to your left and right. We need those men and women. And so I would just encourage you, if the Lord has that stirring in your heart, take it, use it, build on it, and grow it. Because the three of us, we know our failures and our inadequacies. And we need other men who are failures and inadequate to assist us in our mistakes. And ladies, you too, don't think that this is a, just a guy thing. There is a very specific statement in Scripture that men are to be the ones that are elders. You know why? Because I don't really want my wife to have to fight off the stranger at the city gates. I don't really want my wife to have to sit in those discipline meetings where she tells a gentleman in our congregation to stop looking at pornography. I want to keep her out of those meetings. And so I appreciate that men are the ones that are supposed to be the elders. But ladies, that doesn't get you off the hook. We need women to stand up and be counted as leaders in our church. The people of God need good leaders that rule and reign in justice and strength and humility and love. This was very much unlike the leaders of Ephraim. Turn back to Isaiah 28. He again makes another transition and moves from the people of God and the leaders of God into speaking about the leaders of Ephraim. And look at what they are. They're more drunkards. Look at verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. You think he's trying to make a point here? Okay. They reel in vision. In other words, they can't guide the people anymore. They stumble in giving judgment. Why? Because they're drunk. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Now, I laugh because, like, seriously, in the middle of a sermon, I've got to say filthy vomit, all right? So, yuck. Now, what are they talking about here? Well, this could be all sorts of different things. This could be the fact that all the leaders have left their positions of leadership in the temple and out in the streets, and they're actually partying it down, celebrating that they've aligned with Egypt, and they don't have to worry because now they're safe. It could be that just their party tables are full of filthy vomit. But some commentators believe it could be this. If you look up at the screen there, there's a picture. This is called the table of showbread. And this was one of the multiple tables that were in the temple, and they had bread on them. And that bread was called the bread of the presence, and it would be continuously replaced by the priests as they were doing their job uh, mediating between God and people, God and man. And some commentators believe that they were so drunk, they were so messed up in their practice, that they were actually puking on these tables to the point where the bread of the presence had no room any longer. Jesus said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He said, whoever eats of me will not ever be hungry again. And that bread symbolizes Jesus, the Messiah that would, would come. And that's why it's called the bread of the presence. God's presence dwelt among us as Jesus. And these leaders had gotten so messed up in their understanding of what their job was that they were actually vomiting on the tables to the point where God's presence couldn't even be present. Because of the glorying and celebration of the leaders, there was no room for the presence of God because the tables are full of uncleanliness or vomit. So you might ask, Hans, do you and David and Patrick, do you guys like party down? I think the worst we get is when we do tacos from Taco Bell, right? David loves tacos. If you ever want to bless my brother, bring tacos to his household, all right? And we've done that where we sat down and had tacos before. But man, that's about the closest we get to partying as, as elders, all right? So if you want to be an elder, you'll get tacos, okay? Enticing? Is that enticing? So what does he mean here? What, what, what is he talking about? What elders would be like puking up on stage as they're trying to lead their congregation? Well, let's take a look actually at another spot. Why don't you guys turn with me to Ezekiel 13? Go a little bit to the right to Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel is dealing with the same idea of false prophets and false leaders, and he says this. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. Okay, it's the same group of people he's fighting against here who are prophesying and saying to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophet who follow their own spirit and have actually seen nothing. 
Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What was it that these leaders were doing? They were saying to people, you're fine. You're good. Peace, man. When there was no peace. They stood before people who had ruined their witness because they were no different than the world around them in the way they lived life. And they were saying, you're good. You're fine. God's gracious. But see, guys, that's not the truth. And it is the loving leader, the loving father, the loving pastor who confronts sin in the midst and says, no, we can't do this anymore. We got to stop the sin in the midst. Take a look at verse 17. He says, And you, O son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. There were these hyper-spiritual women that were trying to make outfits and, and hand them out and make everybody follow them in their prophesying because they alone had the Spirit. They knew what the Spirit was saying. Guys, in your time as a Christian, you will run into all sorts of people who have words from the Lord for you. How do you know if they're true? How do you know if they're right? How do you know if what I say on a Sunday is correct? How do you know? Well, you go back to the Word of God. You go back to the Word of God and you go back to the leaders of God's people and you ask and you say, does this line up? If it doesn't, how can we be sure it's not my own heart? See, the reality is, guys, is I am absolutely about the Spirit at this church. But the Spirit set apart from the Word is not God's prompting. You can't be assured that it's not just your own feelings. And so I will fight against that. Because I've seen so much wreckage and damage done in the church because of that. We have to be people that live by the Spirit in the balance of the Word. And so rather then searching God's truth and finding out what it actually says and how that lines up with their lives. Look at what the people back in Isaiah 28 did. Go to Isaiah 28 and take a look at verse 9. This is the response of the drunkards, uh, the leaders of Ephraim. Isaiah stood up to give them God's word and to tell them, you guys believe you're acting in God's will, but you're absolutely not. And look at what their response was. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Here's what they were saying. What are we, Isaiah, children? That we need you to correct us? Who do you think you are? Their precept upon precept, line upon line, is a statement, as we'd say it in English, gaga, goo goo. It's just baby talk. 
I don't need to hear your word of the Lord anymore. I no longer need to be corrected. I am a priest. I am a prophet. I am a person who's walked with God for decades, we might say. But folks, if we ever, any one of us in this room, myself included, ever get to a point where we think we have arrived, where we are the mature ones who no longer need to be corrected, we are in grave trouble. For those of us who have known Jesus a long time, we should never get to a place where we think we have arrived and we are beyond correction. If we ever refuse to submit to one another and to the authority put in place in our community of faith, we are in trouble. And when we begin to refuse the correction of our elders and instead search out and heap up teachers that will simply agree with us and tell us what we want to hear, we are long gone. So, God's response through Isaiah is this. Look at verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. So God's response is, I will bring in a people that will make no sense to you and they will be speaking a language that sounds like goo goo gaga to you because it will be foreign. And when you refuse to listen to my discipline, to the clear word of God, it will become confusion for you and you will be broken because of it. How does this apply to us today? Well, let's ask this question. Are we individually and as a church open to the correction of God through his word and his people? And how do we respond when that correction comes? Are we open to the correction of God through his word and his people And how do we respond when that correction? Now, all of this was spoken to the people of Israel. And Israel, as we saw, they were taken into captivity. God had finished his judgment and they were removed. But Judah still hung around for a little bit of time. And what we will see next is God's statement to Judah. Judah was given the chance to repent from their scoffing. Israel was not. Israel had taken it to such a place that they were given over to their scoffing. But Judah was given the chance to repent from their scoffing. Judah was given the chance to repent from their scoffing. And let's read verses 14 through 22. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. What they were saying was that they had made an alliance with Egypt as well, just like Israel, and so they didn't have to worry any longer. But Isaiah sarcastically says to them, you've not made an alliance with Israel, you've made an alliance with the enemy, with the place of death. Instead, he calls it a covenant with death, an agreement with Sheol. And so he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and water will overwhelm the shelter. They believed they were safe from the discipline of God, not realizing that the entire reason Assyria was coming through was to bring judgment upon them. They knew they were not operating as God's people, but yet they kept feeding themselves lies, saying, it will be okay, it will be okay. And guys, this is why it's so important for us to go through the word of God chapter by chapter and verse by verse. When the Bible says to encourage, my first job is to encourage. When the Bible says to check yourself, my first job is to ask us, are we checking ourselves? The word is balanced and it will do its job if we let it. But they refused. And the only way that they could move forward is if they clung to God's plan and what God had put in place. What was his response? That he had laid the cornerstone that will hold them founded and sure. Guys, if we rely on anything else in this life, we will be sorely mistaken. Only Jesus Christ is the one thing that we can count on. This precious cornerstone 
We know that it's Jesus because of what happens uh, in the New Testament and what we're told. Let me give you an example here. Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, says this. He speaks of Jesus and he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This cornerstone that Isaiah is talking about was used in the New Testament over and over again to speak of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only thing solid in this world. The only thing that will hold you and I up and help us to stand in the midst of trials and tribulation when they come our way. We can find refuge and shelter not in our 401ks, not in our retirements, not in our careers, not in our entertainment, not in our escape through video games or movies. We can find refuge and shelter in nothing else, not in our addictions, not in our substances. Only in Christ will we find refuge and shelter. Why? Because he is unmovable and he is faithful through all things. Jesus came to minister and die, and resurrect, and speak the truth of God's heart to mankind. And then he said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will give you my spirit to work with you, to stand firm in the midst of what life will bring against you. Jesus is the one that keeps us from being tossed to and fro, and his word is the one that keeps us from being tossed to and fro when all sorts of opinions come at us. And when we speak of Jesus, what we mean is a covenantal relationship. Not just grabbing his rescue and then running and doing whatever we want, but a covenantal relationship in which he graciously says to us, it is an unearned gift that I give you of my relationship. And then he says, as a response, I desire that you would go and share and witness to the nations of my gracious love. He stirs up in us a response of covenant faithfulness in which we act based upon the commands that he's given us. See, it's not just this ambiguous relationship with Jesus. It's walking in a covenant relationship that keeps us stayed and true in the midst of trial. How do we know this? Well, Jesus himself said this. Jesus said in his parable about the two builders, he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It is only by acting in what Jesus tells us that we know we can stand firm in the midst of trial and tribulation. Guys, when we rely simply upon feeling whether or not God is with us, that will falter when life gets hard enough. It is in walking in his way that he's called us to where we can be assured that we will stand firm when trial and tribulation comes at us. The leaders of the people of Israel had scoffed at God's word and instead fed themselves the lies that they were at peace and secure when they absolutely were not. And see, it's in those times of brokenness and correction where we look at ourselves and we say, I am empty I do absolutely need something other than my own strength that we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are everything. You are all I need. I surrender all to you because you are my cornerstone. Well, Isaiah continues there in verse 17, and he says that based off of this cornerstone, he will then use a plumb line and a line. Those of you that have built walls before, you know that these help you build the building off of the cornerstone. And what are those lines and plumb lines? Two words. You guys should be used to repeating them. Repeat them with me. Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. He uses this building imagery in which the cornerstone of the building is Jesus, without whom there would be no building. But then he continues that from that point, he will use righteousness and justice as the line and the plumb line to square up the walls. What is he referring to? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. I believe without even knowing it, what Isaiah was referring to was the church. God's people that are based off of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, 
built upon him and based off of righteousness and justice. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, As you, the church, come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, the true church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the same names given to Israel a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those that are truly God's people will will remain surely founded upon Jesus in acting upon what Jesus has called us to do. Who are God's true people? Those that have built their entire life based upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ. All of their life is built and measured off of his desires and will for righteousness and justice. And as we find our position and place within the people of God, what we know as the church, in proximity to other living stones, what we know as one another, we will act within the laws of righteousness and justice as we seek to reach the world displaying the worship of God as his temple. It's our choice. If we stand firm in covenant relationship with God and his people, we will find that no matter what comes our way, we will be able to weather the storm. But if we don't, we will find ourselves under the judgment of God. Look back at Isaiah 28, and you'll see what I mean. He says to the people of Judah, your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. We will find even that we are uncomfortable with the very message of the kingdom of God and the people of God because we won't follow it. Guys, the longer that we blatantly disobey when we know we are being corrected, when we know what the truth says, it will harden us like we talked about last time. When I say something very simple, like, guys, follow Matthew 18. If someone has sinned against you, go to them and tell them their fault and reconcile together. And you or I refuse to do it in this church because we're worried about making waves or causing division. No, that's just unloving and disobedient. And you will continue to be hardened in that if you keep doing it. But then he goes on and he says, it'll get so uncomfortable and Take it from me, I know what this verse means. Verse 20, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself out on. (laughs) Try traveling with me and sleeping on a hotel bed. It doesn't work, right? My calves go numb partway through the night because the bed has cut off circulation in my calves, okay? You're going to be so uncomfortable in the kingdom of God that you won't even, you'll feel like a person that the bed's too short or they're covering too narrow to wrap oneself up in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deeds, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore, in other words, so, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. God is about to act in loving discipline towards his people Judah, and he is leaving them with the choice to continue in scoffing or to repent. And I have a question for each of us today. Along these lines, we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus the cornerstone of my life? Is my life built around him and his glory? Or guys, honestly, is he just the cherry on top that I'm going to redeem when I die so I can get to heaven? We talk about this all the time. Your time, your talents and treasure, is it based on the cornerstone? Or is it based on your desires and your kingdom and he's just the cherry on top? And what would it look like for that to be the case? For us to make Jesus the cornerstone of our lives. 
Guys, he gave his life to draw you close and turn you into that redeemed temple that houses his glory. The least we can do is respond in kind. Is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Is your life built around him and his glory? And if not, what would it look like for that to be the case? And the last point I want to finish with today is here. Do you trust the Lord to bring forth fruitfulness in your life? Do you trust the Lord to bring forth fruitfulness in your life? Let's look back at Isaiah 28 and finish up the chapter and then we'll be done. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in what uh, wheat in rows and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Isaiah has now left open the choice for Judah to respond. Don't scoff. Instead, respond, repent. And he follows it up with this parable of a farmer who knows exactly how to sow depending upon the seed and exactly how to reap depending upon the crop. And his point is that just as a wise farmer uses different tactics to bring forth fruit in sowing and reaping, God will also tailor his approach to Judah so that he might not break them, but he might call them to repentance. As we will see in the coming chapters, 29 through 31, he will not just repeat what happened to Israel exactly, but he will slightly alter the situation to give Judah their specialized correction so that they can be most fruitful and holy to the Lord if they choose to respond. Guys, the topic of correction and the topic of discipline, if you're like me, it scares me a little bit. Because I immediately look to my history, to my basketball coaches, to my weight instructors, and I think, oh, to ask for correction is a bad idea. One time I slept in too late on the way to basketball practice. And everybody was in the weight room working out, and so I called up Mickey Marotti, our, our uh, weightlifting instructor. He was about five feet tall and about eight feet wide. And I said, hey, Mickey, I'm so sorry, man. I, I, missed, uh, I missed weightlifting. And he said, no worries. Just show up here at 3 p.m. and bring your workout clothes. And so I thought, oh, great. He's just going to make me make up, the, make up the workout. So I show up in my workout clothes, and they proceeded to wreck me so badly that I literally crawled out of the weight room, across the ice rink in Notre Dame Stadium, to the locker room, and laid down on the bed for, I don't know, like six or eight hours and just slept. I could not walk. And for years subsequent to that, anytime anybody was late for practice, they called it hansing them <laughs> to discipline them to that level. Okay? I don't know if it's still around, but it was there for about 10 years. I hate discipline because it hurts. But see, those coaches, even my own earthly father, they disciplined in a certain way that God doesn't discipline. Remember that there is no one on this earth that can compare to the goodness and grace and mercy and love of our godly Father. He is a wonderful, good, good Father. And while the pruning will hurt, He does it in such a way as to not break. He does it in such a way as to produce more fruit. And He will tailor make whatever correction each one of us needs through His Word, through His Spirit, through our circumstances that even in correction, God the Father will show you unbelievable love and grace.
In John, Jesus said this. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Today, I want to encourage you that even though this word to Israel and Judah was harsh and heavy, it's a word that we need to hear today because for us to ask for God's grace is also to ask for his correction to make us more fruitful. Why? Because that's the proper response to his love. Lord, make me more fruitful, not so I can earn your love, but because your love is so unimaginably great. Not so that I can prove myself perfect in your kingdom, but so that I, so that I can show your glory is perfect. Prune me, change me, search my heart and know me. Make me like you. We want to be those people that seek out the correction and the change of Jesus so that we can follow him. I want to ask you one last question here today, and it's this. What does it look like for you to allow the word, the spirit, and the people of God to do the corrective pruning in your life that will result in greater fruit? What does it look like for you to allow the word, the spirit, and the people of God to do the corrective pruning in your life that will result in greater fruit? For many of us in this room, that means simply opening up our hearts to the people around us. Putting down the walls that we've built up because we've been harmed before. Allowing the leaders to actually lead and the pastors to actually pastor. Forgiving and moving beyond the hurts and harms of previous churches and instead saying, no, we will do our best and make sure we are walking in the truth and the light of Jesus Christ today in this church. My brothers and sisters, is pruning enjoyable? No, it is absolutely painful. But our motivation as followers of Christ is not being comfortable. It is fruitfulness to the glory of God. It is, pleasuring, uh, not, it is pleasing not ourselves, but our Father who loves us so deeply and desires relationship with us. And what we can be assured of is that while that pruning may be a bit painful, God is that good Father who will never do anything out of control or spite but always out of love. And how can we know this? How can we be assured? Father, how can I be assured that if I give my life fully to you and I surrender all and I ask you to prune me and change me and make me fruitful, how can I be assured that you will do it in a way that is loving? And what's his response? I already gave my son for you. I loved you so much that I gave my son to die on a cross and to resurrect. I will not break you. I will simply build you. We can trust him as he takes us through that process, a process where he uses all the brokenness of this world around us to bring us closer to him and closer to his people and give a greater witness to his glory through the fruit of our lives, if we will let him. And so my question for you today is, will you let him?